is that the whole point of the doomsday machine is lost. If you keep it a secret, why didn't you tell the world, eh? Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. Why didn't you tell the world, eh? Well, exactly. Quite right, Doc. Good old Doctor Strangelove, he knew the score. The whole point of a doomsday machine is lost if you keep it a secret. Imagine building one, then not telling your enemies. What's the point? It will only act to deter them if they know about it. The film Doctor Strangelove was made in the 60s, and even though it's a comedy or satire, it was very damn accurate when it came to predicting what the superpowers would actually do two decades later. Because the Soviets did go on to build a kind of doomsday machine, and they did keep it a secret. Why didn't you tell the world, eh? In this episode, we'll look at the Soviets' so-called doomsday machine, using some clips from the excellent film Doctor Strangelove to help us understand it. A reminder to British listeners that the film is currently available to watch on iPlayer, with an introduction by Steve Coogan. But before we begin, let's be clear on some names. The Soviets didn't call their doomsday machine by that dramatic name. Instead, it had the relatively ordinary name of Perimeter. We'll look at what that was, and we'll give special attention to a very sinister aspect of Perimeter called the Dead Hand. And we'll try to keep in mind that the impact of Perimeter and any deterrent effect was largely lost because, in good old commie style, they kept it secret. But this is fantastic, strange love. Perimeter was introduced in 1985, the era when Reagan was shouting from the rooftops about his SDI or Star Wars programme. He made sure everyone knew, and rightly so, because there's no deterrent without fear. And there's no fear without awareness of the damn thing. So let's take a look at the real-life Doomsday Machine. So, what was Perimeter? First, here's some context. The Soviet leaders of the early 80s were, famously, old grey men. I'm thinking, of course, of Brezhnev, who died in 1982, still in power at the old age of 79, and having had been in very poor health. In his decline, he rarely appeared in public, and there were rumours, of course, about his health, but the government would never admit his frailty. According to Wikipedia, Brezhnev was suffering heart disease, leukaemia, jaw cancer, emphysema and circulatory disease all of which had been exacerbated by smoking and obesity. Contrast that with his US counterpart, Ronald Reagan, ex-Hollywood, all gung-ho and galloping about his ranch on horses. After Brezhnev came Yuri Andropov, a man who was also elderly and ill, and who was struggling with kidney failure and confined to a Moscow hospital for much of his last year, where he'd, understandably, often slip into unconsciousness. Then came Chernenko, who was likewise sick and elderly and was in office for just over a year. Now, without wishing to sound patronising or ageist, I assume you'd rather not have such 
frail elderly people in the hot seat when the board lights up red saying there's a nuclear attack incoming you've got minutes to decide what to do So thoughts turned towards how to respond if and when an attack came. With such old men in charge, how can we possibly buy them some time? How can we ensure no hasty, rushed, panicked, clouded decisions are made? How can we shift this awful, immense, soul-bending burden from these old men? The answer was perimeter. The Soviet Union always feared a surprise attack and were furiously committed to ensuring this would never happen again. The dreadful memories of 1941 were still horribly fresh and anyone who has read anything about the absolute horrors of the war on the Eastern Front, for example the Siege of Leningrad, which I've just finished reading a book about, called Leningrad by Anna Reid, which I recommend, Anyone who's read just a fragment of these absolute horrors will understand some of their fear. It must never happen again. We must never be caught again in a surprise attack. And yet the nuclear age had, of course, changed warfare. At least in 1941, the Germans had to fight their way through Belarus and Ukraine and the Baltic states before touching Russian soil. Yet you get no such notice with a nuclear attack. You'll have minutes. And so the Soviet Union had to combine the ironclad certainty of never being surprised again with the need to be careful and not allow this fear to throw them into hasty and unjustified retaliation. After all, computers make mistakes. There were plenty of incidents in the Cold War where computers called out that a nuclear attack had started only for it later to change his mind and say, oh no, wait, uh, it was only some geese or a glint of sunlight on high clouds. Just because the system says nuclear missiles incoming doesn't mean there's actually a nuclear attack. These false alarms show how easily mistakes could be made if one was to launch on warning, i.e. retaliate on the say-so from your radars and computers. Wouldn't it be better if we could somehow wait, wait and see, wait and just be really sure the missiles are indeed about to hit? And so Perimeter came into being. And it had two main benefits. If there was indeed a surprise decapitation attack, which not only killed the leadership, but fried all the communications, a retaliation could still be launched. So you can ruin the Soviet Union and they can still fight back. Firstly, let's look at its communications. Perimeter meant you no longer relied on sending launch orders to your men via the old and vulnerable methods. Instead, Perimeter allowed missiles to deliver the order for you. Under the Perimeter system, there were several huge missiles waiting quietly in their silos. If Perimeter was ever switched on, they would emerge and take off, but they wouldn't head west to destroy the capitalist enemy. Instead, they'd fly over the Soviet Union, 
and deliver the launch order to other missiles, nuclear missiles. As they passed over these nuclear missiles, who were still tucked in their silos, they would spread the order down to them, throwing it like nuclear confetti. The other missiles would pick up the signal and obediently emerge and start heading west. The perimeter missiles delivered this launch order through their noses. On top of the missiles wasn't a nuclear warhead, but what David E. Hoffman in his book The Dead Hand called a nose cone of electronics. And they go sailing through the sky, silently calling all their buddies on the ground to emerge and unleash hell. So, that takes care of death. If a surprise attack is launched, and if your old, frail leader doesn't or can't respond in time, all you need to do is make sure that he or someone else has switched perimeter on, and it'll issue the launch order for you. Retaliation, even if the leadership is dead. The guys further down the chain, tucked deep underground in bunkers, can then launch the missiles via perimeter. By switching on perimeter, you allow those guys to launch the missiles with the magic noses. And they will issue the order to launch. So this lets your elderly Soviet leader sit back and relax. Well, just a bit. He doesn't need to take that fast, stressful, impossible decision when he sees the warning come in. Quoting from Hoffman's book, The Dead Hand, What if the ailing Chernenko could not decide whether to shoot first or be shot? What if he was wiped out before he could decide? The Soviet designers responded with an ingenious and incredible answer. They built a doomsday machine that would guarantee retaliation, launch all the nuclear missiles, even if Chernenko's hand went limp. So switching on perimeter allows the leader to pass the decision to someone else. Nuclear delegation. Okay, lads, if this turns out to be the real deal, then you issue the order. I've switched on perimeter. The rest is up to you. But inside the perimeter system is something else which will send chills up and down your spine. And that is the dead hand. Perimeter allows you to delegate the decision to launch. In other words, you're passing it to another human who has thoughts and feelings and a conscience. The dead hand erases that human element and puts the decision to launch solely in the hands of a computer. If the leadership is wiped out, then Perimeter hands control to the guys in the bunkers. But if they're wiped out, if every living thing in the Soviet Union is wiped out, the dead hand can still spring to life, rising up from the ruins like some commie terminator, and launch nuclear retaliation. Hasta la vista, baby. Under the dead hand, the computers detect the signs of a nuclear attack and launch the weapons without any human interaction. However, we can breathe slightly easier, as one of Perimeter's chief scientists later revealed that the dead hand did not function automatically. Indeed, nothing in the whole perimeter system happens automatically. Every aspect requires human permission. The computers couldn't simply detect devastation 
and issue the order to launch. They needed the go-ahead from, thank God, a human at the start of the process. They don't just take off on their own. So Hoffman's book, The Dead Hand, makes it clear that it wasn't an automatic system. It was merely semi-automatic. I suppose we can take some comfort from that. And of course, as ever with the Soviet Union, there has been some mystery about the dead hand element of Perimeter, with some in authority saying it exists and others saying it doesn't. But Perimeter itself is not in doubt. This all burst onto Western attention in 1993 in the New York Times when an article was published by Bruce Blair called Russia's Doomsday Machine. The article called it, quote, a fantastic scheme in which spasms of the dead hand of the Soviet leadership would unleash a mass counter-strike after it had been wiped out by a nuclear attack. And the article went on to say, yes, this doomsday machine still exists. So, 1993. We found out about this in 1993. The thing was introduced in 1985 and the Soviets kept it quiet, which, as Dr Strangelove explains in the film, makes it utterly useless. Why didn't you tell the world, eh? Good question, Doctor. I've made a short YouTube film about the dead hand. I've been promising for a while now to start a proper YouTube channel and I've finally done it. So please do bounce over to YouTube and search there for my channel called The Atomic Hobo. And please do subscribe. Thanks go to my patrons, of course, whose financial support helps me build this (laughs) nuclear media empire podcast and the videos and of course my history which is due in 2021. My true thanks to everyone who donates money each month. If you want to join in and contribute please take a look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo. I have 92 people now contributing some money ranging from a dollar a month to the superstars who are paying up to 29 dollars a month for various nuclear rewards of course. The 29 dollar a month patrons will have their Name published in the acknowledgement section of my book. They'll also get shot glasses and a personalised copper bookmark. And if you are still waiting for your bookmark, let me say I will be dispatching them this week. I've been out of action for a while with this sore back, but I'm now, thankfully, touch wood, back in full health. I will get them sent out to you. You'll know that I give people a shout out, but as someone pointed out recently, my list of patrons is becoming so long that it may end up being longer than the podcast. So I'm going to read out the names in shorter batches each week. So if you're a patron at £3 or above, I'll be reading your name out every third week. I hope this is okay with everyone. I'll also add all the names to the end credits of each of my YouTube videos. So let's fade out to Dame Vera Lynn singing We'll Meet Again, which is the closing music for Doctor Strangelove, which, remember, you can watch on iPlayer if you're in Britain. You can also use iPlayer to see the war game as well as the nuclear documentary I featured in last week's podcast episode, A British Guide to the End of the World. Let me then say thank you to Dan Breen, Simon Robinson, Lissy D, Eric, Hallie Andrews, Chris Carini, Louis, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Gary Watson, Arika and Lucy Stegervald. Of course, there are plenty of others, but I will read their names out next week so we're not being submerged. But thank you, of course, to everyone who donates, and thank you for listening. 
please do subscribe to the podcast and now to my Atomic Hobo YouTube channel. And I'll be back next week with some more. They'll be happy to know that as you saw me go, I was singing this song. We meet again, don't know where, don't know where.